Welcome back to the Durst Show. We're on Indictment Watch. Um, as you remember, I predicted it wouldn't be Tuesday, um, largely because I don't think uh, Attorney District Attorney Bragg would want to allow Trump's prediction of Tuesday to come true. And then, you know, I think uh, a, a snag really occurred when Bob Costello essentially burst into the grand jury room. He wasn't invited. They didn't want him to come. Um, he insisted, and they really had to give in and, and, and invite him. And uh, he gave some very, very, very damning testimony about uh, Attorney Cohen um, that, you know, they had met, that he was one of his legal advisors, and that uh, he told him that he would lie, uh, that that Trump didn't have anything to do with the payment of money, that that was done uh, purely by Cohen to avoid uh, embarrassment to Trump's family and to try to get him uh, in, in Trump's good, good graces. Um, and so many people expected the indictment today because the grand jury was scheduled to meet from two to five, and that's enough time to come down and eat your ham sandwich and indict your ham sandwich. But it didn't happen today. In fact, Bragg sent the grand jurors home today and said, you know, just twiddle your thumbs and come back and we'll see what happens. Now, I don't know why he sent them home. It could be that he's having second thoughts. He now knows that he has really three choices. He can put on Cohen as a witness and that will devastate his case, make his prosecutors seem incredible. Probably his local prosecutors, trial lawyers are pushing back a little bit and are saying, wait a minute, do we really have to call Cohen as a witness? We will be laughed at and we will be condemned and our credibility will be destroyed in front of the, in front of the petty jury. Do we really have to do that? So one option is to do it and to incur the wrath of uh, so many people and to be made to look non-credible. The second alternative is to try to make the case without Cohen. You can do it. Um, you can uh, bring on the former uh, head of uh, National Enquirer and the former head of you know, Trump's finances, both of whom testified in front of the grand jury. Um, but... Um, it's Hamlet without the prince if you don't have a Cohen. And obviously that will be a major argument in front of the jury. Where's Hamlet? Where is Cohen? Everybody's talking about Cohen. Why haven't they put him on? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'll tell you why they haven't put him on. They don't believe him. And if they don't believe him, how can you convict in this case? So that's option number two. And option number three, which is the right option, is to drop the case. But uh, I doubt that he's gone so far that he'd be willing to go back to his original ideas. And his original idea was not to bring this case. And then obviously pressures of Guggenheim by contributors, by maybe some lawyers and his staff, by by voters. After all, he runs for election um, and he has to satisfy the voters. So those are his three options. Um, he probably will do the foolish thing and put on and put on uh, Cohen and um uh, that may very well backfire. Look, juries sometimes uh, believe uh, perjuring uh, witnesses, but this guy has such a record of perjury that it's awfully hard to, with a straight face, say to the jury, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you've heard my witness, Cohen. You should believe him. He's telling the truth. No, that's going to be a very hard sell. It would be almost as hard a sell as if Trump were to 
take the witness stand, which he's not going to do, and say, oh, I, I never met uh, uh, Stormy Daniels. I, I did not have an affair with her. I don't think anybody will uh, believe that. Uh, people do pay hush money to people with whom they haven't had sex to avoid the embarrassment. But here, the circumstantial evidence is is too strong. They clearly met um, and they clearly had some kind of uh, a contact and then the payment was made. It's going to be hard, even if he didn't have an affair. And I don't know whether he did or not. Um, the jury won't believe it. And therefore, their credibility would be affected. And look, trials are matters of credibility. Uh, we won the OJ case not because <laughs> we had better evidence, but because we put on only scientists as witnesses and they couldn't in any way cross-examine effectively our witnesses, whereas they put on a bunch of lying racist cops uh, who planted evidence and uh, we were able to demolish them. And that was the result. People misunderstand. You know, we didn't win the OJ case. They lost it. And that could happen here as well. I've been involved in many, many cases where uh, the verdict was on our side, but the responsibility for the verdict was with the prosecution that didn't know how to limit their case and didn't know how to put on an effective uh, brief or case. So I don't know what's going to happen here. The, the real question is whether this will ever get to trial. Let's assume we get an indictment. First motion, Your Honor, we move to dismiss the indictment on the ground that the statutes of limitation have been exceeded. There's a misdemeanor charge here. That's a two-year statute of limitation. There's a felony charge here. That's a five-year statute of limitation. The alleged crimes here occurred seven years ago. And they were well known. Nobody was hiding them. All the facts were made public. They easily could have indicted seven years ago, six years ago, five years ago, four years ago, three years ago, two years ago, a year ago. No, they waited until now to indict. Why did they wait until now to indict? Not for a good reason. The previous prosecutor decided not to indict. There was no case. There wasn't enough evidence. Even this prosecutor, Bragg, initially decided not to indict, and there was a revolution among some of his staff members, just like there was a revolution among the staff members when they decided to indict, not to indict. You know, staff members will rarely be satisfied with their boss's decision. But in this case, um, there's no new evidence. Nothing new has happened except more pressures have been put on him and except that Trump announced that he was going to run for president. That is not good enough to resurrect uh, or to be an exception to the statute of limitations. Let me read to you from the New York statute of limitations and, and then from the dictionary, and you'll see how weak a case the government has. So um, statute provides that when calculating the time limitations applicable to the commencement of a criminal action, by the way, the commencement of a criminal action is not an arrest. It's the indictment, the indictment. And remember that the indictment does not have to take place when the defendant is in the jurisdiction. In fact, this indictment probably will occur while Trump's in Florida, and then he'll get on an airplane, he'll fly to New York, and he'll be arraigned and processed, and there'll be the mugshot. Mugshot will be the second most famous mugshot after Frank Sinatra's in history, and uh, people will make T-shirts out of it, and it will become Trump's campaign uh, poster. Look at me. There's a mugshot. That's why you have to vote for me. Uh, you'll see I'll read one letter, le letter later, which says exactly that by one of our 
uh, viewers. Okay. So, um, when calculating the time limitations applicable to commencement of a criminal action, the following periods shall not be included. And I'm going to read them in reverse order because the first one is so obvious we don't have to talk about it. Okay. When a prosecution for an offense is lawfully commenced within the prescribed... Oh, no. I'm reading the wrong thing. Uh, so this is part that doesn't count in the statute of limitations. When the whereabouts of the defendant were continuously unknown. Now, I think everybody knew where the whereabouts of Donald Trump was. He was on television every single day, and he was in the White House. Uh, so we know his whereabouts. And continuously ascertainable by the exercise of reasonable diligence. So part two simply doesn't apply. Even Bragg will not say that his whereabouts were, were not known. All he had to do is turn on a television, pick up a newspaper. Uh, you'd see where he was. He was in the White House or he was in Mar-a-Lago, but his whereabouts were easily ascertainable. So forget about that. Let's get to the first one now. Any period following the commissioner offense during which, quote, the defendant was continuously, I'm going to spell that out for you, C-O-N-T-I-N-U-O-U-S-L-Y, continuously. I want to emphasize the word is not continually, it's continuously. So the defendant was continuously outside of New York. So that's the part of the statute that Bragg will rely on, that Trump was continuously outside of New York. Now, let's turn to another book. Let's turn to the Oxford Dictionary, uh, which is obviously the definitive work. And the question is, what does continuously mean? Well, continuously means, quote, without interruption or gaps. And then others distinguish between continuously and continually, continuously means that it's just never different. It's never, it's, it's one complete failure to be there or absent, whichever the case may be. Continually has a completely different meaning. Continually means repeated frequently, repeated frequently, and continuously means without ceasing. So just to turn that into to ordinary, you know, Brooklyn street English, which is what I grew up on. If somebody does something continuously, it's he does it all the time. So that, for example, if you get somebody who moved out of New York and moved to Florida and never came back to New York, he was outside of New York continuously. On the other hand, if he's like me, and spends a lot of time in Florida and some time in New York, sometime on Martha's Vineyard, then I'm out of the state continually. But I'm not out of the state continuously because I come back. Now, what's the situation with Trump? Trump had a residence in New York during the entire period of time. And he had an official residence. He was a resident of New York during the time, even when he was president and he became a resident of Florida only thereafter. But even when he was a resident of Florida, he came back to uh, the Trump Towers and he had an apartment. Um, so he was never to this day continuously out of the state of New York. Now, they're going to argue that he was. And that continuously doesn't mean what the dictionary says it means. 
it's what various courts have said it, it means. And some courts, you know, courts are, are all over the place on that. But the meaning of the statute, the plain meaning of the statute is as clear as can be. And, and remember, what's the policy behind the statute? The policy behind the statute is you don't want the statute of limitations to run out if a guy's hiding or if a guy ran off to Europe or if a guy had, a, had a, a, an operation to change his face. You can't hold a prosecution responsible for that. But if he's easily indictable, then he has to be indicted within the five-year or two-year period. Now, what could have been easier than to have a grand jury issue an indictment? He doesn't have to be there for that. But even if he had to be there for that, just track his movements. He's not the hardest guy in the world to track. Every place he went was public record. Uh, there was no place during the four years he was president that he was where the public didn't know about, as far as I can tell. And so they could have arrested him if they wanted to when he came to New York, but they didn't. But they didn't. They let the statute go by. And what happens as a result of that is witnesses' memories fade. Uh, some witnesses sometimes die or become disabled. Um, evidence becomes less clear. And there are very important policies behind statutes of limitations. Um, people have a right to get on with their lives after five years of not being prosecuted. And so I don't see how Bragg gets around this statute of limitations. Um, look, he's gonna, he stretches the law all over the place. He stretched the law when it came to, was there a fraudulent bookkeeping entry in the first place? First of all, he's ever indicted for a fraudulent bookkeeping entry. But if there was, uh, was it fraudulent? I mean, yeah, he didn't want anybody to know that he had paid uh, hush money, if he did, uh, to a porn star for having an adulterous affair. That might have been embarrassing to his wife, to his friends, to his business associates. So, so nobody ever puts down on their business forms, I paid $130,000 to a porn star to cover up an adulterous affair. That's never been done in history. So they always disguise it in some way. And the question is, was the disguise uh, fraudulent? Uh, he said legal expenses. Well, they were legal expenses. Um, the money came through his lawyer and it was designed to settle a potential a lawsuit. It was an extortionate demand by Stormy Daniels, because it is extortion to say, I will reveal something unless you pay me. It was an extortionate demand and uh, it had legal consequences. And instead of going through that, um, Trump uh, paid with his own money. He paid Cohn back, paid with his own money to uh, avoid the embarrassment of that being known. And um, and he obviously it would get known if he put it in his corporate records. So he said it was it was legal. I think, you know, Hillary Clinton did that. Bill Clinton um, did that in different ways. I'm sure many people have not made the most precise entries uh, on uh, business forms or other kinds of, of forms. So even the initial indictment for a misdemeanor doesn't work. But then when you add to that the felony, he has to have had in his mind only one purpose, not to avoid embarrassment to his wife, not to avoid embarrassment to his children, not to avoid business uh, complications. The only purpose had to be to get himself elected a president. And you just can't parse people's minds that way. It just doesn't operate. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. So 
I don't know what's going to happen when the grand jury reconvenes, if it reconvenes. Um, I suspect there's still going to be an indictment, but it's going to be a lot harder after Bob Costello's testimony. And uh, it's going to be a lot harder um, on the statute of limitations. But I don't think Bragg cares if he loses on statute of limitations. He says, that's the judge's fault, not my fault. I didn't write the law. I didn't apply the law. I tried my best. Hey, I, I complied with the mandate of the Democratic Party. Get Trump. Get Trump. Stop him from running. Um, and so we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see if Bragg changes his mind. I don't think he will, but it's now become slightly more possible than it was uh, three or four uh, days ago. Look, there's going to be another problem. I'll only take one minute on this now because I'll probably spend some time on it uh, next week. How do you get a fair jury? How do you get a fair, petty jury of 12 people in the city of New York who don't have very strong opinions on Donald Trump and very strong opinions on him running for president? Just remember what happened to me. Uh, <laughs> I had friends. I used to have friends. I used to have a lot of friends. I don't have any more because I defended Donald Trump in front of the United States Senate. I didn't even vote for him. I voted against him, but I'm committed the sin of putting the Constitution before politics, and so people stopped talking to me. Uh, can you imagine what would happen to a juror in New York who voted to acquit? New York is like 87% voted against Donald Trump. It's the probably the bluest city in the country, other than maybe the District of Columbia. It's very close to the District of Columbia, which you also, I don't think you get a fair trial. And if, if, and it's not only that they voted against it, but they voted against them with passion. And they wouldn't talk to people who voted for them. They wouldn't have anything to do with people who voted for them. I just I saw a poll recently. People wouldn't go out socially with people who voted the opposite way from the way they voted in the, in the Trump uh, elections. So how is a jury going to fairly apply the law? Jurors are going to say to themselves, if we vote to acquit, we're going to be the 12 most unpopular people in the city of New York. People go, oh, that's the guy who voted to let Trump run for president. That's the woman. That's, that's her. They're going to lose all their friends. It's going to be very hard to be objective. And so next week, we'll talk about what the alternatives are. Can you move this case to uh, Staten Island? Um, can you move it to uh, Queens? Can you move it outside the city of New York? Oh, that's possible, but will it happen? So we're going to stay on Trump watch. Uh, eventually it will end one way or the other. He'll be indicted or he won't be indicted. And if he is indicted, we'll continue to watch the case because it will go slowly after that, but it will still move and there'll be motions and there'll be arguments and there'll be a lot of things that I know a lot about. So this is the right program, the right podcast to stay tuned to if you want the inside story about what's going on with, uh, with Trump. So please come back and see what developments occur. Now let's look at some, some letters. Okay, the first letter just deals directly with what I've just been talking about. Professor Dershowitz, what are the legal standards for a change of venue? If the evidence is overwhelming that Trump cannot get a fair jury in New York and or D.C., isn't that a cause for a change? Who decides? Well, yes, the judge decides. Can a denial be appealed? That varies state by state. In some states, you can immediately appeal a denial of a change of venue. In other states, you have to wait until there's a verdict in the case, a conviction, because if it's an acquittal, there's no appeal. 
Incidentally, thank you for continuing to provide interesting and unbiased legal analysis. It must have been great to attend your class. Well, you can come back and attend my class. It's very easy. Just, you know, buy my book, Get Trump, and, 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 and read it, and that'll be my class. I mean, I write like I teach, and so you'll see if you get Get Trump. I like that. Get, get Trump. If you get, get Trump, uh, you'll see an analysis of every one of the four investigations against him. And I don't want to give away the ending of the book, but the conclusion is lots of smoke, no fire. And if there were to be a fire, it would have been set by an arsonist. Um, there's not a legitimate case here, not a legitimate prosecution, not a righteous prosecution. You know, there are so many barriers to conviction and affirmance here. Who is it, the poet that said, let me count the ways? You know, I could spend the whole show just counting the ways of why this should not have been brought. I have to tell you, I was a, a close friend of the former district attorney once removed, uh, Robert Morgenthau, Bob Morgenthau, who used to spend the summers in Martha's Vineyard down the road from us and spent a lot of time with him. Bob Morgenthau never would have brought this case in a million years. And his predecessor, Frank Hogan, after whom the building is named, would never have brought this case in a million years. And so, you know, Bragg has to look at the portraits in his building and say to himself, why am I different? Am I smarter? Am I smarter than the federal agents who decided not to bring a federal case? Am I smarter than the previous district attorney, Cy Vance, who decided not to bring this case? Am I smarter today than I was when I first came into office when I decided not to bring this case? No, I think he's just more ambitious. And one big difference has occurred. Trump has announced he's going to run for president again. And so the stakes are higher and some Democrats are pressuring him. He got a very, very substantial contribution from George Soros. Is he worried that he might lose that contribution if he doesn't bring the case? Does he believe he'll get a double contribution if he does bring that case? These are questions that the district attorney Bragg has to answer when he looks himself in the mirror and asks himself, Am I doing the right thing? The answer to that is not if you indict Donald Trump for this Mickey Mouse crime. No, you're not doing the right thing. I love your walls. It would be so interesting to see a video of you touring your collection with commentary. Well, you know, I did that in my other two places that I sometimes live in New York on Martha's Vineyard. So maybe I will uh, uh, do that here. Um, <laughs> this is the only room I'm allowed to put up everything. My wife keeps most of the other rooms uh, a little bit more barren or just filled with art, good art. Here I have a lot of memorabilia. Um, I have some art, but I have a lot of things that just mean a lot to me. And maybe one day I'll explain them all to you. Okay. Um, I am no fan of Donald Trump, but I am considering voting for him just to protest this kangaroo process. I have a better idea. I don't think you should change your vote based on this. But if you really want to protest, get my book, get Trump. That will send a message. If it becomes a bestseller, it sends a message to, to the district attorney to brag. People are watching. People are going to hold you accountable. Maybe you can get away with it by the voters of New York, but History will hold you accountable. You can't stop people like Dershowitz and others from 
writing books. And that's why I wrote the book, Get Trump. I didn't even come up with the title myself. It comes from the campaign pledge of the Attorney General of New York, Letitia James. She said, I promise you, if you elect me, I will get Trump. So you should get, get Trump. Okay, so, but I don't think it's a good reason for voting for or against somebody. But that's your decision. In America, you don't have to explain your vote. You don't even have to tell anybody how you voted. You know, uh, in the last election, my wife, everybody knew that I was, you know, going to vote for Biden. Um, but my wife wasn't so sure because, you know, yeah, I had established some kind of a relationship with Trump. I had worked on the Israel issues. I'd worked on the David Accords, uh, Abraham Accords. I'd worked on some of the other issues. So my wife said, I'm going to watch you vote and I'm going to videotape it. And so she did. Um, uh, we voted absentee ballot in Florida. And so she videotaped me actually filling out the black box for, for Biden. So I'm one of the few people who can prove who I voted for. And I did it proudly. Many of you people disagree, but I thought he would help unite the country. I will not vote for other, some other Democrats. I will not vote for uh, Bernie Sanders. I will not vote for Elizabeth Warren. There are other Democrats who I will not vote for, obviously, none of the squad. But I would vote for Biden again if he was healthy and uh, if he um, decided to run and if he ran on a platform that I could support. Okay. Professor Dershowitz, I do know there is nothing in the Constitution that precludes a person from running and being elected as president or a member of Congress, even if one is con a convicted murderer and sitting in jail for the rest of his life. You know, it came close to happening at one point. We know that the vice president of the United States, under at least existing law and probably under the law that existed at the time, did engage in homicide. Uh, Aaron Burr, who was vice president at the time killed Alexander Hamilton, and he did it unlawfully. And it might have even violated what's called the felony murder rule, because in some jurisdictions, dueling was a felony. And obviously, the result of the duel was Hamilton's death. And he came very close, you know, to uh, being the president. He tied Jefferson uh, in his vote. And any of you who saw the play Hamilton, you know what happened. And Hamilton, although he hated Jefferson's views, regarded him as an honorable person, regarded Burr as a dishonorable person, but unfortunately for history, Burr had better aim uh, than Hamilton. Hamilton probably shot in the air. We're not absolutely positive, but that's what the evidence seems to suggest. <clears throat> so he says, this letter writer, we actually once had in our country's history a person reelected to the House of Representatives while in jail and he cites Matthew Lyon, 1797. I take your word for it, so you sound accurate. Uh, however, could you please discuss the constitutional issues regarding impeaching a president for serious impeachable crimes that occur before he enters office? For example, if maybe a president commits murder and it's not discovered until he's elected and takes office, as always, thank you for sharing your knowledge and wisdom. Keep up the great work. Okay. It's a good question. It's a hard question. I think, here's my view. It's only an opinion because there's no case on it. There's no history on it. If a president commits an impeachable offense in order to get elected president, and he isn't president yet, but he, say, bribes electors or uh, bribes voters, I think he could be impeached for that. But I think if he commits a non 
political crime before he gets uh, sworn in, I don't think that the impeachment provisions would apply, but I can't cite anything. That's just uh, my reading of the intention of the framers. I went back, as you know, when I defended Trump in front of the Senate, I went back and I read every word of the debates in the Constitutional Convention, and they weren't boring. They were, these guys were great orators. Um, you know, it's interesting. Jefferson was a terrible orator. Adams was the great orator. Jefferson was the great writer. And that's why Adams said to Jefferson, you write the Declaration of Independence. But Adams was the one who did most of the speaking. Um, so Moses and Aaron, in, in some respects. It's, uh, so it's interesting. Um, Please, Mr. Dershowitz, make Get Trump available in audio CD. I will pay the extra. No, you don't pay the extra. We're doing it. Um, uh, I haven't had time to read it. Uh, I used to like to read a lot of my books. Most of my books are on uh, Audible, and you can get them uh, on Amazon. Um, this one is going to be read by somebody else. Uh, but according to my publisher, it should be out fairly soon. They're rushing it. Because when they published the book, I think they didn't realize it was going to be a bestseller. And it's becoming a bestseller. It was like 134th on Amazon's list of all the books in the world that Amazon handles, um, which is pretty good, a number. Um, and if you keep buying it, uh, obviously the number will will go up. But we're going to do we're going to do an audio book, I think. But it, I think it took the publishers a little by surprise as to how well the book is done. What if a judge says to Trump, you can't campaign? Unconstitutional. A judge can't do that. A judge can't prevent that. A judge could deny bail, but a court of appeals would reverse that immediately. But he couldn't. And, and a judge could conceivably impose geographic limitations. He couldn't prevent him from Zooming, but he might theoretically be able to prevent him from campaigning in New Jersey. I, I don't think so. And I, I don't think the court would uphold that. Uh, can you name some young people who can carry on your legacy regarding uh, civil rights? Uh, yeah, yeah, I can. Um, Joel Pollack uh, is a wonderful, wonderful lawyer, was my student at Harvard Law School and works for Breitbart uh, and is one of their editors and has a, a, a terrific uh, talk show. Uh, there's a terrific lawyer in, in, in Miami um, named David Marcus, who was my research assistant as well. And um, is a great lawyer who really carries on my my tradition of civil liberties and defending people regardless of political views. And I'm sure there are many others as well. What happened to you, Professor? You're too smart for this. Is Trump blackmailing you? Uh, no, I have nothing to be blackmailed on. I'm an open book. I never have done anything that would warrant uh, blackmail. And if they ever uh, tried it, of course, I never would pay a penny. That's not who I am. Um, if I were ever extorted, I would um, expose the extortion and expose the extortionists. So don't try to get me that way because it would never, ever work. Uh, I'm so thankful for your ability to inform the public about constitutional laws. More Americans need to call out the injustices regardless of political affiliation. One of my regrets in life is that I was never able to have you as a professor. Well, you can have me as a professor. Just read my books. That's what I am a professor. I've written 52 books. I'm working on my 53rd. And um, I write like I talk. Um, you know, I write like I grew up in Brooklyn. I try to talk sensibly, street talk. I'm not an elitist. I'm not a fancy guy. 
and I write exactly the same way. So if you enjoy my talking, then you'll enjoy my writing and get, get Trump. See you next week. And we'll probably have some big breaking news by next week. And, you know, maybe if there is an indictment, we might put on a special show, uh, even though it's not Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday, because I like to be on top of developing events. So see you either next Monday or possibly before that.